every classroom would benefit from a teacher with the knowledge and skills that we provide to help push kids further. I think if we really started at a younger age, not necessarily to do formal identification and testing kids and things like that, but if we started really focusing on ramping up opportunity for kids in the pre-K to grade two or three, we might see the excellence gap closing or stop it before it begins so that we don't have these equity disparities. Hello and welcome to NCAGT's first ever podcast. We're your host, Hannah Park. And Catherine Caldwell. As educators, we feel it's our responsibility to reach all students that walk through our door. However, we realize that every year there are children in our classroom that we feel are put on the back burner because we lack the resources, knowledge, and support to provide for them everything that they need and rightfully deserve. Often these learners are eventually referred to as being gifted, but the problem with that is there's no universal definition of what it means to be gifted, which leads to a whole lot of confusion and a whole lot of inconsistencies. So knowing that we're not the only educators who feel this way, we've decided to work in tandem with NCAGT to interview entrepreneurs, community leaders, stakeholders, and experts throughout the field of gifted education to uncover the truth about what it truly means to be gifted, spread awareness, and hopefully be an instrument of change. This podcast is for anyone who is seeking to learn more about gifted education, parents, educators, and learners from all walks of life. Our organization is committed to being an instrument of change. On today's podcast, we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Sheila Gallagher. Sheila Gallagher is the Director of Engaged Education, where she works with teachers, schools, and policymakers worldwide to advance gifted education. For 13 years, she directed gifted education programs at UNC Charlotte, teaching and leading federal grants, which produced a series of award-winning problem-based learning curriculum units. She was Director of Research at the Illinois Mathematics and Science Academy, project manager at William & Mary Center for Gifted Education, and research associate at the North Carolina School of Science and Mathematics and Duke Tip. Sheila is best known for her work developing curriculum for gifted students. However, she has also conducted research, made presentations, and published articles on topics including personality attributes and giftedness, developmental and academic needs of gifted adolescents, questioning strategies, gender differences in mathematics performance, and twice exceptional students. Sheila is in her fifth term on the board of directors of the North Carolina Association for the Gifted and Talented, and where she directs the Talent Unleashed initiative. This was a beautiful interview. We learned so much new information, and I hope you all enjoy it. So we read over your your bio and you have done so many wonderful things and you're involved in so much. And, but something that really stood out to me, and this might seem a little silly, um, is that you were a professional pastry chef. I think that's so fascinating because when COVID happened and we were all learning at home, I have always loved baking, but I started wanting to learn how to make macarons and it's become this little side fizz that I have now and I am obsessed with it and I just think it's so fascinating so please just tell me a little bit about 
you being this professional pastry <laughs> chef? <laughs> well, you know, people talk a lot about my relationship with my dad and how that has been part of my professional trajectory. But the fact of the matter is my mother was a very talented, self-educated woman. And one of the things that she did is she taught herself how to be a great classical French chef. And since I am the only girl of four children, I was constantly at my mother's side uh, as her sous chef. And I loved baking. So when I entered undergraduate school and I needed a job to help support my education, I started working at a sort of frou-frou gourmet store in Chapel Hill, a Southern season. And uh, I loved it so much that I thought once I graduated from undergraduate school, that was going to be the trajectory. So I spent a couple of years as a professional pastry chef. And then I decided that I needed to get a job where I could earn some real money. So I went into education, which is the big family joke. But <laughs> <laughs> That's so neat. So fun. Oh, my gosh. Well, so that kind of segues into the next question is, well, what brought you into the world of education? Yeah, so there I was, a professional pastry chef, which is a fun life, but sometimes a hard life. Um, and not necessarily a lucrative life unless you're going to go to New York, marry wealth and write a cookbook. None of that was in the cards for me. So my father actually offered me an opportunity to help him revise the fourth edition of Teaching the Gifted Child. And so I took that opportunity and um, it sort of went from there. That's when I decided to go to graduate school in gifted education. But I would also have to say, sort of peeling back from that, that I had an undergraduate degree in psychology with a focus on cognition and child development. And so I've always had this interest in the psychological makeup of gifted and talented individuals. So it was sort of a natural segue, even though the pastry chef thing was a lot of fun. <laughs> and I also saw that you are involved in Talent Unleashed. And I know Hannah talked to me a little bit about that, but could you just kind of go into depth about what that is, and especially for our listeners, because they may not have heard of Talent Unleashed. Yeah, Talent Unleashed is a part of a larger initiative that NCAGT has been involved in that starts in 20, started in 2019. So if I could just go back a little bit in time, when we started um, thinking about equity seriously and gifted education and what we could do as an advocacy organization, so, you know, starting in 2019, we have been trying to break the mold in advocacy in the area of working with culturally, linguistically, or economically diverse students. So what started that was an advocacy conference called Talent Delayed, Talent Denied 2, where we brought in a lot of educators who were interested in the lives of children of color and children in poverty, but outside of the field of education. We also brought in members of the faith community, different advocacy organizations, some policy people. And we said, look, here's the problem. And we are invested in trying to solve it. What do you think of this idea? And they were like, go, go, go. They couldn't wait for us to do more. And with that encouragement, we started actually a separate advisory committee that's different from the board of NCAGT to help us think about what steps we should be taking as an advocacy organization to help advance the needs of gifted children of poverty and gifted children of color. So one person on that group said, 
what you guys need to do is start working with teams of teachers in the district, but they need to be teams that are comprised of people outside of gifted education within the district, as well as the AIG coordinator. So we need to spread the word and really help people understand that this is a systemic problem that goes well beyond the gifted program itself. So that led us to submit a grant proposal to the Z. Smith Reynolds Foundation, which we're glad they funded, and that led to Talent Unleashed. So that has been a year of working with six districts at different levels of organization at different, they're different sizes, they're in different locations in the state. And we have been meeting together, like we met four times last year for day long combination of in-service and conversation around what to do about the excellence gap. And it's been great. We're in year two now, Z. Smith Reynolds has given us renewed funding. So we've got a few new districts on board. Uh, we just finished doing a mini conference where we brought people beyond those initial teams in the first districts to help spread the word even further. We had great response from that. So that's been really, really exciting initiative. Um, and I'm really grateful for the support of my fellow board members and the districts who have been involved, who have been devoting a lot of time during a very difficult time in education. That's such important work. I mean, I, throughout our conversations, I've never, I guess, fully understood the weight of students sitting in the classroom who are not identified and what they're going through and just what their day and their life is like if they're not correctly identified because of maybe what they look like or where they've come from. So I think that's such important work and that's beautiful that that's happening. We're actually waiting to hear on another grant right now which would help us develop materials for kindergarten. Mm, so that we really can talent spotting in kindergarten, culturally relevant materials that would integrate art and the other disciplines. So, you know, fingers crossed, we're very hopeful, but we don't know yet, but it would be a wonderful next step. That's so exciting. So how do you define what it means to be identified as gifted? Well, the state has a definition, so <laughs> I'd like to follow that state definition. But, you know, I think, well, let me bring it down a level because I think when we talk about gifted and talented as a blob, people can get really confused, like this big group, what is being gifted? But if we were to take it down to a more practical level and said, Let's take a look at the fourth grader who knows fourth grade math. You know, what do we do with that child? And let's say we've got six fourth graders who know all of fourth grade math. What do we do with them as a group? And that's where I like to start, especially talking to everyday people about giftedness. It's like, it's the child who's ready for more. What do you do? If a child can make a three-point shot when they're in third grade, do we ask them to stop and wait until everybody else can make a three-point shot before they learn anything else about basketball? No, we go find them a coach. We find them a team. We get them the right equipment. We put them in the place where he can move forward. That's what we want to do in gifted education. We want to help everybody move forward a little bit every day. That's such a beautiful way to explain that. So what would you say the difference is between being gifted 
and being talented? Is there is there a difference? That's sort of the $100,000 question right now. <laughs> People talk about gifted being a confusing term, but I think the meaning of talented has really changed dramatically over time. You know, I was just been doing some research into our deep history, and I was reading about the early days of the first federal legislation called the Marland Report. And back then, it was really clear that gifted meant intellectual ability and talented meant creative ability. Well, things have shifted. Today, we use talent in a lot of different ways. In the business world, talent is synonymous with worker. So they talk about talent like bodies in jobs, which is different from how we refer to gifted, which I think contributes to some of the confusion. So, so for me, I think of talent as being the above average, where giftedness is exceptional. But I do think there's confusion within the field around that right now. But I actually have an example, which sort of helps with the difference. If you don't mind if I do a little reading. Please. This is um, a quotation from one of the students I work with at Camp UNASA. And we were having this conversation with those highly gifted kids about is gifted education important and why might it be important? And she, this one student started talking about her experience in school. And she said, I started ninth grade when I was 12, and there was another girl a couple of months older than me who was also starting ninth grade. The main difference between us is that she was working really, really hard to maintain good grades at the ninth grade level at the age of 12. She was having a real struggle. She was constantly having to do homework. She had to put a ton of effort in. Whereas I was sitting in all my classes daydreaming because I still wasn't being challenged because the way the traditional curriculum is taught doesn't hold my attention. So I always thought there was an extreme difference between us. Seeing this girl's experience compared to mine when we were the same age in the same grade. I didn't really understand much about giftedness, but even at that point, I thought this doesn't really seem like the same situation. I just love that quote. And yes. to me, it speaks to the difference between the child who's got this inherent ability to go beyond and the kids who we know if they are given the right circumstances and if they work hard, they can achieve more than we would expect of them. Right. So I think but I think those are two very different kinds of kids and the educational modifications we provide for them also ought to be pretty different. So it's like they both fit under the umbrella. I think we need to provide services to them both, but what different experiences those kids are having. So you've already spoken a little bit about this, but what would you say are the similarities and the differences between gifted students and the general student population? Well, I would say that you know, we could go like straight to the cognitive. There we can see some clear differences. I mean, the first thing that you always notice about a gifted child, it's how they're identified is that they soak up information like sponge, like they're consistently taking in information and they retain it faster than other kids. It's like two to three repetitions is all they need as opposed to the six to nine that we recommend for other kids. In fact, they get bored with too much repetition. Um, but the thing is that even just being like an information acquirer does a lot more than just give you a lot of 
acts, you know, and prepares you to be a good Jeopardy player. You also have this opportunity to make more connections among pieces of information if you've simply got more information to work with. So more interdisciplinary connections, more original ideas. And that's another feature you see with gifted kids is a lot of original thinking. And then something else that happens is you've got all this information. You got to organize it somehow. So you start building these hierarchies, which is an initiator to conceptual reasoning. And we know from the research literature in psychology that gifted kids tend to acquire this abstract thinking ability, the ability to reason using big ideas like systems or change or justice or truth. That happens earlier for gifted kids. They, they simply have busier minds. And I'm just fascinated by like the new research in neurology, which shows both how plastic the brain is, like everybody can learn more than we ever imagined, but also the research in neurology that shows us that kids with higher cognitive capacity have brains that are structured a little differently. So I don't know what the implications of all that is yet, but I think it's a fascinating new world and the field is going to be constantly grappling with these two realities, right? The brain is plastic and some brains are different than others. As you were just talking about all that, I was thinking of a couple of students of mine who during the lesson will make these connections that are just like that throw me that I'm like, oh, wow, like I didn't even think of it like that. And some other students, a lot of the other students in the classroom are like, they didn't they like it, they don't understand exactly like where we just went, but like they just it's so easy and it clicked so quickly for them to make that connection to something else. So it's easier for them to probably make those connections now that they have all that they've soaked up all that knowledge. Precisely. And they love doing it. And it's why they need to have a teacher who understands and appreciates what's going on there, because it can be a royal pain in the wazoo for a teacher who's trying to go yeah. down the train track, right, and get to the objectives. It can be very irritating to the kids who missed the point altogether. But if the teacher knows what to do with it, how to encourage it and contain it when necessary in appropriate ways that don't squash the child, then the child's in a you know, a situation where their giftedness can be supported and appreciated. Well, in, in previous interviews that we've done, we've spoken, we spoke to Rick Courtright about stereotypes of yeah. gifted children. And that was a really interesting conversation. And we've also spoken to people about just the lack of knowledge and training that a lot of gen ed teachers have in the world of gifted, just not even knowing how to identify and what to do with those learners. Mm -hmm. um, so we really want to try and emphasize that these characteristics and how to spot the children that are in our classroom. So do you have any examples of maybe like children or students that you've come across in the past that might, I don't know, jump out to someone listening as to, oh my gosh, I didn't even think that that child could be, that's what's going on there, they're gifted. Yeah, I, you know, I have categories of kids that I think of, you know, they're the one that is easy to see the bright and shiny high achiever, right? And that's the person who's going to be very compliant and, you know, gets the homework in and it's all neat and beautiful and they're going to get A's because not only because they're smart and they work hard, but also because they're well behaved, right? And whether or not it's a good thing, we use behavior sometimes as a metric, but then the kids I particularly love are the kids I call the quirky iconoclasts, right? They are the original thinkers, the kids who are going to make those connections that you were just talking about, Catherine. 
that are either adored or the teachers either really resonate with them because they do the same thing or mm-hmm. they're really going to frustrate the teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, I call, When I worked at the Illinois Math and Science Academy, we called our kids decidedly different learners, and we were trying to create a place for them. I think these are the kids who really stick out and are often frustrating and neglected because, because their originality, it's off-putting sometimes. And so because teachers don't know what to do with it, because it doesn't fit in our school container well, they are treated as outcasts. I think of a young man that I know who um, is, you know, he dresses gothy. (laughs) And, And so you either love that or you don't. He is an artist. He's an amazing artist. And he spent a lot of time in his youth doing just incredibly detailed adult level portraiture. Absolutely amazing. And everybody recognized that and were like, ooh, 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 ooh. But when I saw him last summer, he decided he wants to be a tattoo artist. <laughs> and yeah, and that's kind of a different path. And it's a little unusual. It's outside of the norm. He's sort of questioning the values of traditional classical art. He wants to take it in a new direction. And people who love his art are beginning to go, hmm, you know. But I say, go for it. Break boundaries. You know, show us something new. That's my quirky, quirky iconoclast stuff. These are also the kids, by the way, whose thinking is so original that they often won't do well on standardized tests Mm. because they outthink the test. They come up with original answers like I could make choice D work, even though I know C is right. D is really interesting. And so I'm going to answer D. And so they end up being wonderful thinkers who don't get National Merit Scholars because they simply are so original that they don't do well on the test or, quite frankly, because they look at the structure of the public education system and they say, oh, I don't need to play their game. And they simply don't invest enough in it. So what would you say are some of the characteristics associated with maybe like leadership or creativity? Yeah, I think that what we're finding in the areas of personality and giftedness are, I think there's a common core. Um, High achievers in any area tend to have some characteristics associated with what today we're calling openness to experience. Like they are the inquirers, they are the seekers, they ask the questions, they like making connections, they are intellectual risk takers. And I think that's true across those three areas that you mentioned. I think that the differences that you see is what they do with that core and sort of the doorways they take. So you might have somebody who's very open to intellectual ideas and they want to play with the possibilities. They like to take the given information and rearrange it. Um, come up with their own answers to unique problems. Creative people are kind of similar. They'll do it in different domains and they're the urge to explain the world in a different way is really, really profound. I think leaders, I think one of the key differences leaders is that they also tend to have this extroverted people orientation or they really know how to overcome their introversion to give people an extroverted view. But it's a question of working with 
those systems, the, the systems of people as opposed to systems of art or the systems of intellectual ideas. The one thing I would say about leadership in particular is that the research has always shown that kids who are above average are more likely to be seen as leaders than kids who are highly gifted because sometimes the gap between a typically developing person and a highly gifted person is simply too much. Or when you think about different kinds of leadership, um, the leader of people is more likely to be that above average person. A leader of ideas might be the highly gifted person. That's interesting. I've never thought about it like that. So what would you say are some of the social and emotional characteristics of gifted students? You touched on that just a little bit, so I didn't know if you wanted to add any. Okay, so we start with this personality difference, right? And, and that's mm -hmm. part of the foundation. Um, we know that gifted kids tend to be high in this thing called openness to experience. It's related to something else, a theory of overexcitabilities. And my own research, recent research has shown that as this openness thing goes up, kids tend to have more and more overexcitabilities. So kids who have high openness tend to have three or more overexcitabilities. And for people who don't know that term, I would simply say it's categories where if you think about a light on a dimmer, the rheostat is turned all the way up to high. So emotional highs and lows are even higher and lower. The intellectual interest is an obsession. The imagination is constantly living in your fantasy world. So it's personality at the extreme ends, or sometimes it's physiological, like psychomotor overexcitability, where somebody's really got the nervous knee, or they're very sensitive to touch it, or um, they have to be active all the time. Um, and then there's sensual, which is the fifth area. Well, my research shows that regardless of what combination you have, you tend to have three or more if you are at the high levels there. So that is a dynamic, even just within the child. This leads to something that we call asynchronous development, which if you unpack that means they different aspects of the child develop at different rates over time. Well, that's true of everybody to some extent, but it's really, really true of the gifted child. So they may behave like a 10-year-old, a, a might behave like a 12-year-old in class, and they might behave like a 10-year-old with their parents, and they may act like a four-year-old at bedtime. And it all depends on the context and what's going on. So um, we see that inner, and that can cause some inner turmoil, just dealing with all of those different levels all day. So that can create some social and emotional issues. I was going to ask how you think that affects their, their mental health. If Well, you know, that's a really interesting question because this research studies on mental health and giftedness shows that by and large, they are a very healthy group. Really? Their social, yeah, in terms of their mental health, they tend to be better adjusted than other kids. They, they do face the same kind of social and emotional stressors that other kids do, but because they're smart, they have better coping mechanisms. So it's interesting that there seems to be a balance between some of the social and emotional tensions they can experience and their capacity to deal with them. The, the other thing to, do, to think about social and emotionally, which is true of any child who is at the fringe of a population, is that they tend to be socially isolated. 
And so making friends can be more difficult. When you're one in a hundred, you have to go through a hundred people before you find the other one who's like you, and then you have to share the same interests. So that's why having summer programs, like we used to have Duke Tip, which I really miss, um, or summer programs like Camp Unasa, where I go every summer, those are havens for these kids. And they often make true friends for the first time in their lives. Oh, but that's a beautiful thing to witness, huh? It is amazing. Uh, I have really seen kids transformed by that experience to be able to do regular camp stuff, you know, go on the zip line and on the bouncy in the lake. And then also talk about Star Wars or Star Trek or whatever the popular card game is. They can geek out while standing in line without being worried about being bullied, (laughs) right? Or being considered weird or offbeat. And we like to think that the activities that we do with the kids at UNASA is really what helps them. But to be quite honest, I think it's being in the bunks together at night, you know, talking, hanging out, being gifted, being having that level of conversation with one another. I think that's what it is. The consensual safe space to be yourself. Precisely. And that's what we say again and again. And I'll tell you, these kids weep when they go home. You know, yeah, it's so, so powerful. So thank goodness for social media. Now they can stay connected all year. And I know that kids who've been to that camp who this is their main social group. Can you identify the variety of factors that may affect the development of gifted students? In some ways, it's the same as could impact any developing child, right? So lack of opportunity will Mm -hmm. affect the development of a gifted kid. And one of the things that we look at when we think about these culturally, linguistically, or economically different children is access to programming. So you can't learn and avoid. That's a big one. Having support a support system is crucial. So that support system is comprised of the parents, it's comprised of peers, it's comprised of other adults, teachers, educators, mentors, who support and encourage the child. Often when we look at these students, the the acronym is CLED, right? When we think about CLED students, very often they talk about the one person who made a huge difference in their life. So that question of having the other adult is really, really important. So there's there's access, there's support, there's encouragement, and then there's the inner will to jump barriers. And it's too bad that we require that of some students and not others, but they really do have to have the inner resources to really want to achieve. And we go through interviews with kids who are from different populations. And it's really, really clear that some of them have more resources in that area than others. So um, I I would say those are the biggies. Well, and and we know that there are a lot of common stereotypes that are associated with gifted students, but are there any that stick out to you as being the most dangerous or could do the most damage? Well, I guess that also depends on the child. There's the nerd, the kid with the pocket protector, Oh, you know, it's really interesting. If I can go on a 
little side route. A few years ago, I did a survey. I was part of a national public opinion poll endeavor where we asked 1,400 people all sorts of questions about giftedness. And this was done by polling organizations. It was done outside of the field. So we knew there wasn't going to be bias. We oversampled Black, Hispanic, and what they called opinion elites, which is civically oriented, well-educated, and affluent citizens. And we asked them, what comes to mind when you think about the word gifted or high ability or any of the other terms that we use? And what we found is, first of all, they understand the word gifted. They know what we're talking about. But the second thing we learned, which was a little surprising, was they really didn't have much of a negative connotation with the word. Like they didn't say nerd, geek, all those other disparaging terms. They said smart, learns fast, is capable, ready to advance, things like that. So I was really, really intrigued that some of the things that we think of when we think about the public and gifted education weren't as true as we expected them to be. That said, we have young Sheldon on TV. He presents a stereotype. And, and that's not good because you know, kids who are gifted, we know from the research, tend to be, again, mature, attractive, strong, all of these things. But we present this sort of alternate view, which isn't very attractive, and kids don't want to associate with it. So that's discouraging. Um, I, white male upper middle class is also very much a stereotype that we have to fight against um, because we need people to recognize that gifted kids come from all cultures, all races, all neighborhoods, and we need to look differently in order to find those kids who are capable of thriving in an advanced environment. When you were talking, it made me think of how kids don't naturally think of it as a bad thing, but that they're taught that from everything around them in the world. And that's just so sad that and then what like those students who are gifted then feel like that's what they are. And they have those social emotional, you know, things that we were talking about. Yes. And that gets communicated from somewhere. Mm -hmm. I think that you mentioned teacher educator programs, and I think that this is huge. I think there's a lot of misinformation that gets communicated in pre-service education about gifted students and who they are and what they're like that then gets communicated down at the classroom level. Yeah, that makes me think of another thing. Just recently, our AIG teacher is starting to pull third grade enrichment groups and they look at different data points that they have so far on the kids and it's not a lot. And then they ask us, is there anybody that you think would benefit from this group? And I was talking to one of my you know, teacher friends and I thankfully have a little bit more knowledge now that we've been doing this podcast, but so many of my other colleagues, they don't. And they are thinking about these stereotypical kids, the kids who are making the highest grades, the kids who are the best at everything. And I'm like, well, not quite. And like, I have a student who makes connections, like we were talking about, and he's not the highest in the class, but he makes those connections and will have, like, he'll, you can see in his face when I use like sarcasm, if I say certain things, he gets it. Yeah. But like, if a teacher didn't know about those things, they wouldn't identify that student. And then he wouldn't get what he needs this year. And, and I just think that's a shame. That's sad. That's why I think it's so important that teachers who aren't 
teaching that just AIG room still have some type of education in this, on this Absolutely. topic. Absolutely. How do coexisting conditions and exceptionalities affect gifted students? Well, there are three ways that it usually shows up. Um, it depends to some extent on the exceptionality, and there's a lot to choose from. And giftedness can coexist with any of them, right? But you see three typical patterns. The first is that the exceptionality dominates, like the child is way ADHD. And so people focus in on that and they want to deal with that, provide kids with tools in order to cope with what's going on with the ADHD. And because the focus is so singularly on that, they ignore the giftedness or it doesn't even show because the ADHD is really taken over. Um, this happens a lot with autism spectrum kids, right? Because everybody wants the kids to be socially successful and they're putting all their efforts into that. I have heard a lot of people say, we need to deal with the whole child as, as a reason to ignore the giftedness and pay attention to the exceptionality when in fact the brain is part of the whole child and it really needs to be a systemic approach. Um, so that's one pattern. The other pattern is, of course, the exact opposite, that the giftedness is shining through and the kid is such a whiz at math that they're ignoring the fact that they've got a bit of a, a learning dysgraphia writing problem or something else. And parents very often like lean into the highly giftedness if they see that and will sometimes neglect to attend to the exceptionality issue because they're so happy that their kid is gifted. Then teachers also can fall into that trap. It's like, look at how amazing this child is. Nothing else is going on. So that can be a problem. And then the third pattern is that they balance each other out so that neither one of them shows. The brain is an organism that compensates. And so it's busy trying to balance both things. And then what happens, actually in all three scenarios, what happens is that the child is exhausted child's mm -hmm. exhausted mentally all the time because they've spent all day compensating, not on purpose, but that's the brain's been working really hard that way all day. That's why sometimes you see kids who look really well behaved at school come home and just melt down, right? Because they're all in overflow. I would also say that we don't talk a lot about other areas of exceptionality. So I just want to put it out there that there are gifted kids who are blind. There are gifted kids who are deaf. There are gifted kids who get around in a wheelchair. And those are other areas of exceptionality we really need to pay attention to. I love that you say that because a lot of times when we think about like 2E, we think of ADHD, autis autism, and that's kind of where the train stops for a lot of conversations. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think about the actors of the National Theater of the Deaf as the stunning example of twice exceptionality of a different sort. Well, and, and you've dedicated a lot of your life to the world of gifted education. So what would you say are some of the biggest challenges that face gifted students and gifted education in the world that we live in right now? Yeah, I think of three. The first, of course, is that one that we've talked about already, equity. 
By the way, in that national public opinion poll I was talking to you about, one of our big findings was that contrary to popular belief, the public does not want gifted education dismantled in order to achieve equity. What they want is for gifted education to be ubiquitous and available in every neighborhood so that every child who is capable of thriving in an advanced environment has an opportunity to. That was a great finding and very, very encouraging. So we have to have to have to keep working on making inroads into other communities so that they understand that we want to serve those kids. The second on my list is something we've already talked about. I think we need to have universal educator preparation in gifted education. And we've been talking a lot about how classroom teachers, the general ed teacher needs to have that background. I would add principals, administrators, curriculum directors, special ed teachers, everybody needs to have information about these kids. It's a glaring gap in teacher preparation right now. And when I was teaching licensure courses at UNC Charlotte, my students would constantly say, why wasn't I getting this before? Why did I have to come back? And the problem, of course, is, as you guys know, that now a teacher has to want to come back, right? So we get, we get the teachers who are already interested on their own, but that's probably 5% of the population of teachers, if that. And every classroom has a gifted child. Well, most classrooms have gifted children. Every classroom would benefit from a teacher with the knowledge and skills that we provide to help push kids further. That's two. The third is early childhood gifted education. I think if we really started at a younger age, not necessarily to do formal identification and testing kids and things like that, but if we started really focusing on ramping up opportunity for kids in the pre-K to grade two or three, we might see the excellence gap closing or stop it before it begins so that we don't have these equity disparities. Special ed and other areas of education have known for a long time that early intervention is key to ultimate success. And we need to do better at providing early interventions of our own. Every single one of those that you yeah. spoke to, I can just see it in my head in yeah. the classroom. Wholeheartedly agree with all of that. Mm -hmm. um, so Sheila, if our listeners want to get in contact with you, if they have any questions or just want to further the conversation, how can they best get in contact with you? Well, you know, I've got a Twitter handle, but I don't use it much. So I would say emailing me is probably the best way to get in touch with me. I've got two email addresses. They are S-A-G-A-L-L-A-G-1 at gmail.com, or they can reach me through my N-C-A-G-T email address, which is sgallagher at ncagt.org. Amazing. And our last question for you, I'm very excited to ask you because we've been told by a couple people, you need to ask Sheila Gallagher what she thinks about this question. So oh um, <laughs> we want to talk about the divide that the term giftedness can cause leading to misconceptions and preventing students from being identified because they don't check these preconceived boxes. Would you agree that the term gifted is problematic? And if so, what would you rename it? 
Well, what an interesting question. And I've got about 17 different answers for it. So I am as curious as you are as to which one is about to come out right now. I, we might want to go back and talk about therapeutic dose. I will just say that and put it on the shelf for a minute. But I don't have the same problem with the word that a lot of people do. I noticed that people like sports journalists and arts reviewers use the word gifted without qualm or hesitation. So I really make note of that. They are the first to change their terminology if a word is really, really bad. The public understands the word and doesn't seem to have a problem with it. So to some extent, I think that this is a problem that we've created within the field or a problem that we've exacerbated beyond all reason. But I don't know that I'd fall on my sword to keep it. So okay. what I want is for us to have criteria to choose the new term, right? I don't want us to just pell-mell say, oh, it's going to be this instead of that. So when I think about a term that might replace the word gifted, I want a term that is clear. I would like for it to be comprehensive, like encompasses the full range. I would like for it to be broadly accepted. I don't want to go on having fights about words. And I think it should be accessible to the public. So whatever it is, I think it ought to meet those criteria. And I think it ought to be beta tested before we go whole hog, like do a little market research on the word. So I think it's a big change and it's a word that we've all been used to. I, I think we give it excess meaning and that almost any other term we choose would acquire that excess meaning. Right, yeah. But um, I do have a candidate, so I'll just throw it out. I think children with advanced abilities. Children with advanced abilities. Yeah, so that suggests that whatever it is we're talking about, it's advanced. It allows for a lot of different kinds of abilities. It would be an umbrella that would include the kids who right now we call talented and the kids who right now we call gifted. And it's pretty neutral on all other aspects. So that's where I tend to go if I'm not going to use the word gifted. Now, let me talk about the word talented for a second. I use that when I think it's helpful. It's not my favorite word because I think it's too mild. It's too mild to describe the full phenomenon of the highly gifted child. It sounds to me sometimes like my fourth grade ballet class. And I'm sorry, we just even talented was a stretch. <laughs> I think that it is talent development is really important. I think that it needs to be a part of our field, but I don't think it's the encompassing umbrella that really suits all of the kids we should be attending to. Your answer absolutely did not disappoint. That was beautiful. I love that. 